Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's first letter, the first first John. Uh, we'll look at chapter one, verses one through four. It's the preface to the letter. Uh, the text is also printed in the bulletin, and there are Bibles available on the table in the back if you need one. Um, starting a series on First John. Uh, it's book that I've returned to frequently. Um, maybe that makes it one of my favorites, I guess. Uh, maybe some of you can relate. It's a pretty good book. John's writing is, um, it's beautiful. I don't, it, it, there's a simple, really stark kind of a style to it. Uh, the, the vocabulary is very limited. It's, you know, even with my Greek, I can read it in Greek. It's, uh, <clears throat> um, but it's, it's tremendously insightful and profound and evocative and theologically deep. Um, even though it's written very simply, it's, it's very profound. And it's easy for people, I think, to read this letter for the purpose of uh, meditation. You know, Christian meditation is not just clearing your mind, uh, like maybe Eastern meditation is emptying your mind, having no thoughts, no desires. Christian meditation is, um, is like chewing the cud. <laughs> uh, of the word. You get the word in there and you let it bounce around in your head a lot uh, till it affects you. And so I think it's easy for people to read this letter that way for the purpose of devotion, um, allowing the truth that God has revealed to sink down deep inside. If I had a good working uh, definition for the word mystical, it might even fit that. I don't, I don't know if I have a good working definition for that word. Uh, and I'm a Presbyterian, so I'll stick with devotional. Um, but maybe add words like personal and spiritual to describe this letter. Uh, John writes in a way that it brings to life the idea of a relationship with God. A relationship with God is unlike other relationships. But you can almost imagine it when you read First John, what it's like, because uh, John had a close, intimate, personal relationship with God. Uh, the, the concepts conveyed in, in his writing are simultaneously easy enough for children to grasp and to memorize and to profess and, um, and at the same time great enough to captivate prayerful theologians for lifetimes. Right? Um, it's pretty deep stuff. So we're going to um, slow down a little bit, uh, go a couple of verses at a time. Usually we go larger sections at a time, it seems like, but uh, we're going to slow down uh, hopefully, then you can call this series somewhat more devotional. Uh, and that's not to say that it's not instructional, right? Those two things are not uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, we should learn something along the way. John's definitely writing to instruct, to build up his church in the faith that it already holds and to defend it against, you know, different kinds of heresies, different false teachings. Um, and so he feeds our minds and he also feeds our hearts. It's instruction and devotion. Um, and those things go together. They work together. And it, it's clear that, uh, like I said, John loves God very much and loves uh, other people, especially those in the church, um, always using terms of endearment. Um, and very simply, that's what he's trying to foster in his readers through this letter. It's love for God and love for each other. And he's doing that by keeping, in his, in his writing, he's keeping our faith fixed on God 
uh, fixed on his love by assuring us that it's true, uh, that Jesus really is who he said he is, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true just as God has revealed it, and that you, uh, you can know that you really do have a relationship with this God by his grace. Uh, and the truth of God's love, then, that he's fixing your eyes on, the truth of God's love really has the power to thoroughly change your life. So this letter is filled with assurances uh, and celebrations of the good news that are meant to produce transformations from the inside out. Um, and so this morning, that's kind of a general overview of the book and the series, but uh, this morning we're looking at um, how he does that in the first four verses. It's the preface. Uh, introduction to his letter, and here John starts talking about the gospel, the message of uh, who Jesus is and what he's done, and uh, he calls it the word of life. That's what he calls it in this passage. And so as we look at these verses, I'd like us to think about three things. We're just going with the standard three-point outline thing here. Um, What the word of life is, we should look at what the word of life is, what the word of life does among you, and then what the word of life does in you. So uh, what it is, what it does among you, and what it does in you. So let's pray, and then we'll read from John's epistle. Father, even this uh, simple language, as it's recorded in your holy word, would be like a brick wall to us if it weren't for your spirit at work in our hearts and in our minds to make us able to see uh, you in your word, to truly hear from you, to open up our ears and uh, take the scales from our eyes. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would send your spirit right now to lift the scales and open our ears and help us to hear you and perceive you in your word, um, this beautiful word that we have from your apostle And we pray that as we hear you, not just about you, but we hear you, uh, that we would be changed into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, what the word of life is, uh, you see it there in the text. There are two basic ways to undermine or try to undermine Christianity. Um, If Christianity is centered on who Christ is, there's two major ways to kind of undermine that, uh, or try to anyway. um, First is to deny the full divinity of Jesus. And the other is to deny the real humanity of Jesus, the full, real humanity. So to deny the uh, eternality, the eternal nature of Jesus, or to deny the historic, uh, material, human nature of Jesus. Those are the kind of two ways that you can try to undermine uh, the essence of Christianity. The true significance of Christianity depends on holding those two things together, really. And John wrote this letter 
at least in part, to bolster the churches in Asia Minor, churches that maybe he had planted or been pastoring, um, which is uh, in modern-day Turkey. Uh, he's, he's writing to bolster these churches against false teachers. <clears throat> and you see this kind of pop up a few times throughout the letter. We can't figure out exactly what these teachers were proclaiming. It's maybe a couple different things, a couple different groups of people. <clears throat> but, um, but it does appear that they were hitting on these points. Some of them were trying to undermine the divinity, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. Some of them were trying to undermine the full humanity of Jesus. And the church councils hadn't met yet to produce the great creeds uh, that prodded, um, you know, the early church. The, the, they hadn't met to talk clearly about who Jesus is in his two natures, the divine and human nature, right? Uh, they hadn't figured that part out yet. In fact, it was battles like this that are recorded in, in this and Paul's letters and uh, in the New Testament, uh, several spots that kind of prodded the early church to figure out the language that they needed to use in order to defend the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus. Uh, but John, here uh, at the, the end, toward the end of the first century, <clears throat> he already knew how important it was to hold to these truths. Uh, that the gospel itself amounted, really, to nothing more and nothing less than Jesus Christ being the Son of God come in the flesh, the, the incarnation, in other words. Um, the gospel, so the word of life, is the message about who Jesus is. And as John's talking about it here, <clears throat> um, he's talking about these things, the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, and actually another part that we'll look at, um, the fact that he is life. He is eternal life. So those are <clears throat> kind of the three subpoints of this first point, what the word of life is. John is talking about the divinity, the humanity of Jesus, and the fact that he is life. Um, <clears throat> so divinity, he says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning. That's what we're talking about, concerning the word of life, that which was from the beginning. And he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God. Before he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was. Right? He was before he was born as a human. He was before anything was made. From the beginning. Right? And that means that he's God. He always has been. And he always will be. Um, it says in uh, John's gospel, the prologue to John's gospel uh, is filled with similar kind of language as what we see in the preface here. <clears throat> but he says um, in John 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word. He's talking about Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we read, Suzanne read the Old Testament reading, Genesis 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. He's the only one that was there. He's the only one that was acting. And, uh, and so when it's talking about that which was from the beginning, he's talking about the one God. Um, <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 1 uh, says, Are you not from everlasting or from the beginning? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And Micah 5 says, From you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, or from the beginning, from ancient days. 
Right? It's a prophecy about Jesus Christ coming into the world, the one whose coming was from the beginning. And uh, so that kind of leads you into then the discussion of his humanity, which John talks about again in, in verse 1, uh, that which we have heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we have looked upon. That's not just a, a redundant, it's a different usage of a word for looking. Uh, what we've seen and what we've looked upon, looked upon is like this beholding, it's this gazing, it's uh, this observing and discerning kind of look. It's like when we saw him, we knew something. We, um, so that which we've heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon, and touched with our hands. And that expresses kind of definite material investigation, right, concerning the word of life. So this is conclusive proof. It really is conclusive proof of the historical, material, human nature of Jesus Christ. He was publicly seen. He was publicly known by many eyewitnesses, people who touched him. Even after he was raised from the dead, they touched him. It said, again, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Son of God, he doesn't only have a divine nature anymore, as if that were a mere thing to have. It's not only that, but, uh, but he added a human nature to himself. The Son of God took a real human nature to himself. He didn't give up his divinity, but he added humanity to himself, and, and so he united divinity and humanity in himself, in one person, Jesus Christ, uh, forever, so that from now on, he has these two natures, and they're in union with each other, the divine and the human. And then <clears throat> thirdly, what uh, John's talking about here is that he is eternal life. Right? Concerning the word of life, he wants you to know that he is, I mean, this is where it gets interesting. He says in verse 2, which is like a parenthetical verse, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So, again, like a parenthetical verse, John picks up his original train of thought in verse 3, but once he's mentioned in verse 1, the word of life, he's like, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen and heard concerning the word of life, he now feels the need to elaborate a little bit on what that is, the word of life. He's already touched on Jesus' eternity and his historicity, or his divinity and his humanity, but Jesus is not just any divinity. Right? He is not just a generic God. He's not just one of those gods. Um, he's the one true God. He's a particular God. He has a certain nature, a specific set of characteristics or essence, right? Um, he's not like other gods that we might imagine. Uh, he is, he's a particular God. And John calls him the life, the eternal life, the eternal life which was with the Father. And so he's not talking, when you read that sentence, you might think he's just talking about some kind of abstract life that was with the Father, that the Father had this thing called life, and it was by his side from the beginning, and he flung it out into the world or whatever. Uh, he's not just talking about some ethereal, abstract life that was somehow with the Father. The word with there in the original language is a relational word. It's, um, you can forget this afterwards, but it's important for now. <laughs> it's the word pros, uh, which uh, the normal word for with is meta. 
The normal word for with, when you get something with something else, is meta, and pros usually means toward, uh, except for when it's used to say how when one person is with another person. That's, that's the way it's being used here. So um, the eternal life was pros, the father. It was with the father in a way that one person is with another person. So John's talking about Jesus, and he calls him the eternal life which was with the Father. And I'm not sure what it's called when you use language that way. Um, It's more than metaphorical, right? John is particularly fond of using language that is not normally kind of personal language to describe persons. So he calls Jesus the Word. He calls him the Light. Here he's called the Life, the Eternal Life. Uh, He has Jesus recorded as saying things like, I am the Life, I am the Bread. Uh, I'm the door, those kind of things. are. That's not, it's more than metaphorical. Um, and he does that a lot. John, John records these things a lot when he's talking about Jesus and when he's talking about the Spirit. And we'll see several instances of that as we go through John, uh, John's letter here. But I think, um, I think one thing we can know is that this is Trinitarian language. This is describing the first and second persons of the Trinity. Right? Uh, the Father and the Son. So the Son was with the Father. And... Um, so the word of life is not just a word, it's not just a message about some generic God, it's a message about the triune God, uh, one God in three persons, who is such a God, he's a particular God, he's, he is such a God that one of the persons is eternal life. That's, you can almost say it's a name for him. Uh, it's, it's who he is, it's what he is. Um, he doesn't just have life. So he does have life. <laughs> he doesn't just have life, and he doesn't just give life. He is life because he's this God. Because he's this God. He's the second person of the triune God, the living God. Right? That's why it can be said he is eternal life. So this is important for our whole understanding of Christianity. The ancient Hebrew conception of life is pretty different, I think, from our standard conception these days, or the Greek Western kind of thoughts about life, and I'm, I'm not sure all the ins and outs of it, but the ancient Hebrew conception of life was much more personal and relational. Uh, it was relational. So um, life meant relationship, and especially with God. If you're going to have life, and when you look at the scriptures, if you have life, it means you have relationship with God. Um, and Jesus teaches us this when he says things like, I'm the, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he says, this is eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ, whom God sent. Right. And so in God, sorry, this, think of this as it's devotional, it's spiritual, it's mystical. <laughs> eternal life is with the Father as a person is with another person. And uh, John Stott says, since eternal life is to know God, he who is eternal life does not enjoy immortal solitude, but conscious, continuous, intimate communion as son with the Father. That's what it means to have eternal life, to be eternal life. And that means that our having this life consists in the same thing. It's relational. God doesn't just... uh, He doesn't just love within the persons of the Trinity. 
He has made this eternal life manifest to us, it says in verse 2. He's made it manifest to us. He moved out towards sinners with his love, with his relationship that consists in eternal life. With that love, he has moved out toward us in the person of Christ. And so life, life is union with this God. Life is communion. And there's one who is eternal life, who is the union of divinity and humanity. That's the Son of God incarnate. And that's the gospel. That's what the word of life is. There is this God, and he is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, for your life, for your union with God, because God loves you. Uh, And so, second, what does the word of life do among us? Um, That's related. That's related to this. The one who is eternal life, who is union, that's like, God is union. Um, The one who is eternal life, he establishes life, which means that he brings us union. He brings us communion. He brings us fellowship. Uh, That which we have seen and heard, in verse 3, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, the proclamation of the gospel, the word of life, establishes life. It establishes community, divine fellowship among us. Another way of saying it that we're probably more familiar with is the preaching of the gospel brings salvation. That's what that is. But in John's terms, it's the word of life that brings life, which is union and fellowship with God and with each other in the church. So salvation is life in union with God and with one another. That's what salvation is. And John and the other apostles who had seen the risen Lord Jesus, they had the authority. There's like 12, there's, I think there's about a dozen times where he says, uh, it's the first person plural pronoun about what we saw, what we've seen and heard and beheld and touched and looked upon and, and proclaim, testify, all those. He says, we, uh, the apostles, they'd seen Jesus. They had the authority of eyewitnesses. Over and over again, that's emphasized here. They had the authority of experience of eyewitnesses, and they had the authority of commission as those who were sent out by Jesus Christ himself. Not only had they seen these things, but Jesus said, you go tell people about it. So their word, the word of life, the message of Jesus, their word, their proclamation, the gospels that we have, the letters in the New Testament, the apostolic faith, these are sufficient to bring you into the fellowship. These are sufficient to bring salvation to hearers. You don't need to have seen Jesus. That's what he's saying. We saw Jesus. We're telling you about him so that you can have fellowship with us. You don't need to have seen him. The apostles were sent by him to proclaim what they witnessed so that you too may have fellowship with us. So we're brought into the communion of the apostles, the eyewitnesses themselves. We're not second-class citizens because they saw him and we haven't. We're brought into their very communion, into their very fellowship. And even more, we're brought into the communion of the Father and the Son through the proclamation of the gospel, through the, the word of life. The word of life establishes us together in relationships of a magnitude that no one can fully comprehend. 
nobody can comprehend the magnitude of the relationships that are established by this word of life. You have access to the inaccessible Father. Through the Son, as the message of the Son is proclaimed to you as you believe it. You have access to the Father. In fact, as a gift of God's grace, you're granted the very same fellowship that the Son himself has with the Father. You're granted that relationship by his grace. You are caught up into true eternal life, knowing God as the Son knows the Father. And this communion is the basis for our fellowship with each other. That's the first thing he mentions, is that we can have fellowship together. You you can have fellowship with us. And that's what Christianity is. You can't be a Christian apart from the church. You really can't. Uh, That is not the normal way of being a Christian, outside of the community, the fellowship of the church. Some deny that outright. Uh, Some steer away from that. By personal preference, some are more subtle in withdrawing. They might even come to church, but really don't participate. Um, withdrawing from that sense of, I need this. This is part of salvation. Right? This is what salvation is, is this fellowship that we have. Um, and that, So John Stott again says, fellowship is a specifically Christian word. It's a specifically Christian word. Because we are united to God in Christ... We are united to each other. Um, And so we enjoy relationships that really they can overcome any obstacles. They can cross any divides. They can absorb any offenses. We have relationships like that in the church. And this, of course, is related to then the third point. Um, That's what the word of life does among us. It creates this life, this community. Um, But third, what the word of life does in you. And he says in verse 4, simply, we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. So that our joy may be complete. He's using the word our, probably inclusively. He's like, my and your, like the readers are included in this. Uh, So his purpose in writing about the word of life that will bring us fellowship with God and with each other is so that our joy may be complete. It won't be perfect, it won't be fully complete until the resurrection, until the new heavens and the new earth, when you receive your body back glorified, even as Jesus' own human body is, uh, made perfect in body and soul, both, uh, you know, both body and soul to be like Jesus and never sin again and see God face to face. To behold God is to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Um, it won't be per- our joy won't be complete until then, but our joy is the goal now. He says, I'm writing this so that your joy, our joy, might be complete. And toward the end of his letter, he gives another kind of a bookend purpose statement. He, he puts these every once in a while um, in the letter, but I think at the end is one, a, a more summary statement. In 1 John uh, five thirteen, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So you, you may know that you have this kind of life, this fellowship with God and with each other. The apostle wants you to know that you have that. He wants you to know that you have that, to be assured of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and your relationship with one another. And that, of course, if the apostle wants you to know that, of course, means that God wants you to know that. 
God wants you to know that you have eternal life. And it's when you are assured of God's love for you in Christ that joy really begins to work in you. When you're convinced of that, when that fills you up, that assurance um, of God's love, then joy really begins to work in you. And you can be a Christian for a really long time and not have joy when you think about God. You can be a Christian for a long time and not have this kind of joy this complete, full, deep, abiding joy when you think about God. How often have you wondered whether you're really even a Christian, maybe? How often have you despaired of that? How often do you feel guilty for not doing enough as a Christian? For not doing enough at church or for not praying enough uh, with your spouse or with your children? How often do you feel guilty for that? That is not reflective of the joy that the word of life is meant to bring you. That kind of guilt, that kind of deep doubt, that kind of despair uh, over whether you actually have a relationship with God, that's supposed to go away. It's supposed to be replaced by joy, the joy of assurance, the joy of certainty that God loves you. When you're convinced that what you know about Jesus is true, that he is the God-man, he's come into the world to bring you life with God, that you really are welcome here with us into God's own family. When you're convinced of that, uh, then, then it does what other good news does. It evokes a certain kind of response, and it's one that's happier rather than sad. Right? Good news evokes a happy response, a joyful response. Uh, you might know the joy of... Um, you know, the last day of school before summer vacation. You might know the joy of being, you know, graduating from high school, graduating from college, uh, the joy of uh, your wedding day, the joy of seeing children born or grandchildren born. Um, and those joys, they are good, but they are relativized by the great joy of knowing that God is as pleased with you as he is with his own son, Jesus Christ, and that you have access to him just as his own son has access to him that's joy that's it's not a happiness based on your circumstances um, it's a deep joy that's locked onto the good news and it stands fast through all the bad news all the hurts there's real pains uh, you know we can't get into all the caveats here there's real pain there's real suffering but this kind of joy abides in your heart and it carries you through anything to know that God always loves you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Uh, Jesus said in John's gospel in chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And he said after his resurrection, uh, or he said in John 16 about after his resurrection, after I rise from the dead, he said, uh, your your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. If you're in relationship with God through the risen Lord Jesus, it means joy. That's what this relationship means. That's what the word of life does in you. And you really can have a joy that nothing can take away, that no one can take away 
because it's based on the full assurances of God in the gospel, in the word of life. And so then you'll start to resonate with the psalmist, David, who says things like in Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. As for the saints in the land, he says in Psalm 16, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So uh, if you don't know this joy, if you don't know God in this way, all you have to do is ask. He He loves to show this to you. He wants your joy to be complete. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it truly is hard for us to believe. Uh, we don't know all the reasons why it's hard for us to believe this, that you do love us. <clears throat> and you love us with all your love. You have not withheld anything from us. You've given us your own son And by your spirit, you've united us to him in a way that we can enjoy his own relationship with you. And you've united us to Christ together in a way that we have a relationship with each other as one body. And all of this is uh, things that we can say and even think about and profess. Um, Yet it seems slow to sink into our hearts and to produce the kind of joy that it seems like the apostle wants for us here, that you want for us here. So we pray that you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would lift up our hearts, that you would make these same old words perhaps um, become new and living to us, that our hearts and our minds would always be fixed, that our faith would always be fixed on you because you are the one that assures us of your love through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.